Hello and welcome back to the Maluli Asset Podcast. This is episode 410 and I'm your host, Casey Maluli, joined by Tom and Brendan this week, 410. Do you know where that zip code is? Uh, you mean area code? Yes. Uh, 410 would be Baltimore, Maryland. That's right. Okay. So this is the Baltimore, Maryland episode. All right. But what's 411? 411 is like information. Yeah. <laughs> Committee info. I was, we were around for the pre-area code days when you used to, when the phone numbers were seven digits. So yeah, that is, uh, just goes to show that, well, maybe I'm getting old here. Anyway, like I said, we're recording this a couple days after the Fed met for their September meeting. To the surprise of no one, they raised their benchmark interest rate by another 75 basis points up to 3%. The message was pretty much the same as they had in their their Jackson Hole remarks, Bren, which I know you and Tim did a podcast about, and we've kind of been talking about the repercussions of that here for the last couple of weeks. So uh, more of the same from, from the Federal Reserve. I think they did a very good job in foreshadowing what to expect. And so no one really should have been caught off guard. There were kind of like a bell curve of distributions. There were a few people out there that were saying, you know, it could be 50 basis points. There were a few people at the other end of the spectrum saying they should just do 100 basis points, 1%. But most folks kind of got the understanding that it was going to be 75 basis points. And, you know, as soon as the event is over, people start looking ahead to the next meeting, like, okay, what are they going to do next? And so, The talk, at least after the Fed meeting, from all the talking heads, was they could see a terminal rate of somewhere in that four to four and a half percent range, say four and a quarter, which means that we would, you know, if you want to be neat and tidy, there would be another 75 basis point hike followed by a 50 basis point hike. Uh, But really, who knows? That's the talk now. You know, they could... Uh, all that messaging could change over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, Brent, I know that we've looked at a chart that was put out by Bespoke Invest on Twitter about uh, potential paths for year for inflation, basically. And it looked at where the actual CPI has been and, and what would happen over the course of the next year or so here if certain rates of change in the month-over-month numbers occurred. So the change in the last CPI print was um, a 0.1% increase in the month over month. And if that continues, this chart from Bespoke projects that around the spring or, or late winter, February, March of next year, we could see that terminal rate of a little bit over 4% actually be higher than the rate of inflation. And that would basically mean job done by the Fed or, or it has it has in, in the past been the way that they've gotten inflation under control. I thought it was interesting to look at it illustrated the way that the chart laid it out because I think that is like maybe simplistically the expectation is that we need to see those numbers coming in on CPI uh, be negative for it to go down. But since it's a rolling number, if we just see small increases, uh, you know, and again the the number that 
freaked everybody out last week or the week before. Um, you know, obviously, I think it was more about the expectation and then the number being a little higher than expected. But if, if those incremental increases are like somewhat small, then the overall rate of inflation that, that we use at least as a gauge of what's going on is going to drop. Um, but it's going to drop instead of just getting like a minus 6% one month, like magically, it's it's more like turning a cruise liner or something like that, where we're, we're going to get these small increases that eventually mean the rate of inflation peters out and gets us to a point where, yeah, maybe maybe the Fed's hiking and things are, are normalizing on their own. And, and hopefully at that point, that's when they've got it under control. So to clarify, you know, what the way Brendan just explained it is that this is a rolling 12 months number. And so as bigger numbers from 2021 and 2022 start rolling off, the rate of increase is going to, even if it continues to go up at a very small rate, uh, eventually the interest rates are going to catch up. We don't necessarily, you don't want to start seeing like dramatically negative numbers. That is a separate issue, which has been the entire thing this year that we oscillate back and forth between, which is we have to get inflation under control, but if we get it under control too fast, then we are in a recession and we don't want either of those things, but we, you know, we have to toe the line to try to uh, get to where we want to be. Yeah, it's, I know there's been a lot of comparisons between the 70s and, and early 80s economy. During that time period, the Federal Reserve was trying to balance growth and fighting inflation, which led to them kind of doing this on-off policy of cutting and then raising and then cutting and then raising again. And Volcker came in basically and was like, we're getting inflation under control and we're gonna, it basically just, that's our sole focus for right now. And we're kind of seeing the same thing from Powell right now where it's like, you know, the labor market is continuing to be good. That is their, their dual mandate technically is to promote price stability and balance unemployment and what they've signaled was employment is good so we're going to focus on inflation for right now so it's it's kind of of the house money that allows them to play and try to do what they can to get inflation under control so uh even if we see i guess those were those were like the spooky words this week that have people freaked out is you know the tough uh tough talk on that front meaning like powell's comments were like yeah we might even see an increase, a small increase in the unemployment rate as a result of what we're doing. And like, we don't really care that much. And I don't know if that's true. I guess it depends on to what degree, because I don't think that if it started to go up dramatically as a result of what they're doing and everything else happening, that they wouldn't be there to be accommodative. But they at least have to talk that way for now. Um, I guess the thing we don't have to do is get sucked into every single word that they say about this one way or the other, because I think that they can change their mind at any point in time based on what's happening. So yeah. And they've done that before right. in the past. I also think it's to, to your point about it gradually coming off, it's going to be a collection of data points and not just one data point in time where people, I think that's kind of what people were looking for in the summer rally here that we saw in the markets. People were kind of, ex, they saw one kind of good inflation reading and just projected that out into the future. So it's going to be a collection of data points and kind of a slow grind down um, versus this this big 
drop. We talk about how you know market participants now, whether it's stock market or bond market, how market participants are freaking out and ripping their hair out over a 75 basis point hike. There was a Fed meeting, I think at the end of 1979, where Volcker raised Fed funds rate by 400 basis points in one meeting. And then over the like the next the next two meetings raised it another 600 basis points uh, from 79 into 80. It's it's relative though because four percent on on what he was hiking on top of is probably the same on a percentage basis increase versus uh, 75 off of what they were hiking from very, off week. a very so low number. Yeah. So it feels the same despite the numbers being larger. Uh, I I agree with the broader point that you know we shouldn't be freaking out over that especially when this was as telegraphed as could be as have the last hu- couple of hikes uh, been none of them have been surprising so to that point volker never gave press conferences and they never made an announcement it was at the end of the day end of the trading day the market closed at 3 30 those days it was starting tomorrow Prime, you know, Fed funds rate is going to be here, and all the banks afterwards would raise like to a point over that, and that's how you knew that the Fed was changing rates. Then at least Greenspan, when he came along, he would have some kind of statement that it would take people to the next Fed meeting to kind of translate what he was trying to say. You know, starting with Bernanke and then Yellen and now Powell, the fact that they have these press conferences. It's glorious to at least be able to ask them questions and get a somewhat straight answer. You even get the, it seems like, at least over the last couple of months, you get the unofficial uh, update from the Fed like the day before with the one reporter at the journal who seems to just get the info from the Fed and announce it. It's like their soft announcement before they announce it to maybe try to get the market to not freak out. It doesn't seem like it's actually helped the last couple of times, but it does seem like... Uh, yeah. Drawn a blank on the guy's name, but he seems to have the report the day before. It's uh, Nick Timoreos. Yes, I yeah. think uh, yeah. I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but yeah. um, he's had stories multiple times this summer. Part of what was positive for the market over the late summer months was uh, not only the data that was coming in on inflation, uh, making people wonder if we were, you know, maybe getting getting uh, some progress on that front, but like. We had the earnings come in and earnings were still really good for most companies. And that that's like the next shoe to drop that all the doomers have been talking about is just wait for the earnings. Like all these numbers are baking in forward earnings. Like if the earnings are lower, then look out below. And so far it hasn't happened. I mean, obviously you're going to have specific instances of companies struggling and having uh, bad quarters and then turning around and blaming it on uh, the global economy like <coughs> FedEx. Um but so I wasn't going to say it. I'm just, you know, so it's very easy in this environment when your company's going to miss for a quarter to come out and just be like, yes, supply chains, inflation, yada, yada, instead of just owning up to the fact that you might have had a bad quarter. Right. And we've seen it from other retailers, too, with inventory issues. It's like, you know, and, and I'm. I'm not well, sort of Walmart that. and Target really, really difficult, bucket. really difficult to plan given that we went from uh, a, a place of extreme shortage to excess and not having enough to make sales and seeing all the demand slip through your fingers to the opposite uh, this summer. So, like, you know, 
tough, tough world for those retailers to uh, exist in. And the fact that they had excess inventories weighed on earnings earlier this summer. But people were looking at as like the the harbinger of, uh, you know, the recessionary times that like Target missed on earnings and has a has a glut of inventory. Like, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe 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 it's just been a difficult environment and it doesn't mean anything about the economy overall that Target had a bad quarter. It could be company specific and not a broader thing. And, and just in general, you know, you look at the technicals, you look at the fundamentals so far. Earnings, I think, broadly have been mostly OK. Yeah, good. Uh, and, better than and, expected. And the forecasts for the next quarter and the next year seem to be okay. Right. Yeah, I know we've, we've talked about it quickly before on, on a couple of previous podcasts, but this being uh, a midterm year, Tom, I know we talked about this a couple of days ago, just kind of off the cuff, but I want to share some numbers here. Um, Ryan Dietrich over from Carson Group shared that this year looks a lot like 1962 with there was a new Democratic president. It's a midterm year. There was some supply chain issues going on that year, too. The S&P in 1962 didn't bottom till October, October 23rd. But from that point on into the end of the year, there was a 19% rally. Um, and that has kind of been the story for a lot of these midterm years. Another popular follow here from Twitter, Eddie Elfenbein shared that in actually all of the midterm years dating back to 1962, the story is a lousy first three quarters and then a very good fourth quarter with the average drop in the first three quarters being 6.2% and then the average fourth quarter return is, again, 6.2%. The Going back to 1962, so we've got like 60 years of data. The only uh, time... Well, I guess it's not 60 years because it's every four years is a midterm election. So 15 years of data. But the only time that didn't that formula or that recipe didn't work out was actually in 2018 when we had the opposite, where we had a decent year through the first three quarters. And then everything just, you know, fell out of bed in the fourth quarter of 2018. The market was just terrible. Went down 20 percent to Christmas Eve. Yeah. Yeah. so uh, there's, you can kind of take these straw arguments, these historical things. You know, we, we sat with a client yesterday and we said, hey, look, uh, we don't expect history to repeat, but it often rhymes. Uh, and so these are things that we like to keep in our back pocket to remain optimistic and hopeful, but we don't want to bank on these things happening. Yeah, it's definitely not a rule and, and there's very few rules, I think, when it comes to investing. But I think in a world of, Brian, like you said, all the doom and gloom, it's important to kind of keep this context and uh, and share it when we do come across data points like this. So I know you, you also have an article from the journal that you wanted to talk about regarding mortgage rates and kind of the, the crazy spike we've seen there and how a lot of, um, could you share the, sure. the numbers and specifics with us? Okay, so shifting a little bit more towards real estate and it's easy to find plenty of doom and gloomers as, as Brendan calls them online who say, just wait, you know, besides earnings, one of the next shoes to drop in this economy is going to be housing. And housing, it was just a big bubble waiting to burst. And I think a lot of people are playing the last war 
or the last battle that happened with real estate. You go back to 2005, six, seven, where we had this tremendous run up and everybody could, could own four houses and uh, there were liar loans and no money down and all those crazy things. And that led to the implosion of 2008, nine for the real estate market that continued into 2011. Um, things are a little different this time. So I'm just going to read this quote that I pulled out of the Wall Street Journal and I, I retweeted this this afternoon. Nearly nine out of every 10 first lien mortgages, so primary mortgages, nine out of 10 of them have an interest rate below 5%. More than two thirds have a rate below 4%, according to mortgage data firm Black Knight. 83, about 83% of these mortgages are 30 year fixed rates. And so it's going to be hard to find people who are going to be forced sellers in this market. In 2008, 9, 10, even into 2011, there were plenty of people who became forced sellers. They couldn't afford to pay their mortgage anymore because their rates increased. Well, they had an adjustable rate mortgage. 83% of these people don't. They also had dropping home values, so they couldn't refinance. They didn't have equity. I mean, they were totally like in the Roadrunner cartoons. Wiley Coyote had gone off the cliff, and now he was going to go down 500 feet. So uh, a little, I, I would say, a totally different scenario this time around. I, I'm not going to make a prediction about home prices or the real estate industry, but it seems to me that there's going to be a lot of people out there who would like to upgrade to a new home or a bigger home or whatever, but they've got a mortgage that they're paying 3% interest on. And, you know, right now, if you're looking to get a new mortgage, you're looking at six and a quarter, six and a half, maybe depending on your credit score, maybe even higher than that. So uh, I think this is going to be a speed bump for real estate. I, I just don't so make a weird market. It's like when Very you have weird a thinly market. traded security, the bid ask spread is going to be a mile wide. So you yes. have people who want to sell and then you're going to have people who want to buy and they're not going to agree upon what it's all worth because the new buyers are going to have a massively higher interest rate than uh, they might have a year or two ago. And the sellers want to get as much money as possible to be compensated for the fact that they're going to be giving up a 2 or 3% mortgage and shifting to something different. So uh, I think we've seen that in the home sale data. Sales are slowing down, but I don't think that that's necessarily uh, indicative of housing prices also going alongside them. It just it just might mean that there's a lot less activity happening as a, as a result of what interest rates are doing. I tend to agree. Right, so we're not gonna see these big drops in home prices like we did back in 2008, 2009, but we might just see, yeah, like a slowdown of activity and not as rampant as a, a housing market as we've seen for the last two or three years, but it's not going to be a crash. It might just be a prolonged slowdown. Is, is that basically? Well, the, the, the crash happened last time because, because what Tom said, people, people had to yeah. sell. Right now, it's like you might want to move, but if you take it to market and you get prices that you don't like, you can just say, all right, we'll stay. Yeah. And as long as you can make the payments, then nobody You're can good. force you out of there. Like That's the deal that you cut. Yeah. So. Uh, the homeowners have a say in whether the real estate market tanks or not, whether they're willing to accept what they believe is 
90, 80 cents on the dollar for the asset they're trying to unload. That's That's got to be their prerogative. I mean, people are going to sell because of life circumstances uh, for sure, but the idea that people are going to be doing as much as we saw in 2020 or 21 in the real estate market, uh, I mean, pro- probably not with interest rates as they are. Yeah. It's going to be it's going to be a different set of circumstances. And so I think the message is kind of in in the same vein as as Brendan was talking about earnings and earnings expectations. I, I think folks kind of look at the past and try and pull a play out of an old playbook and say, OK, this is probably probably what's going to be the next problem is going to be uh, decreased earnings expectations or poor earnings reports for the same reason. I think there's. There's people out there who are saying that real estate's going to be weak. I don't necessarily know if that's the case. For the same reason that people are saying we're we're definitely going to have a recession. How do you know? If you look at the uh, corporate balance sheets, have never been better. Uh, If you go back 75 years now, the individual consumer has never had a, a better looking balance sheet, and the banks are in fantastic shape in terms of their lending guidelines. And so these things don't normally happen when we're in a recession or about to go into a recession. People just want it to be binary though. We can we can exist in a world where people who bought homes in the last couple of years don't make the kind of gains that people who bought a few years before that did in real estate, but also don't lose their houses in a housing crash. We can just be somewhere in the middle and honestly, I, w- I would say that that's probably more likely than either end of the spectrum. But people want to make those extreme proclamations and then, uh, yeah. you know, re- reap all the fame for being right. But it doesn't need to be that way. We had a, a client call in a couple of weeks ago who was looking at buying a, a second home, vacation home. And he said, I'm just nervous because of what's going on in the market and what's happening with interest rates and mortgages and things like that. I said, if this is a vacation home, just forget about all of those details and tell me how you're going to feel 10 years from now. And he's like, thank you. You're right. So it's a vacation home. Don't worry. Right. Of course, like, you know, it would be great if you made money on something like that also, but it's not necessarily the investment aspect when it comes to something like that. It's like, can, can you afford this within the confines of your financial situation? And is it going to bring you enough joy that it's worth the dollars you spend on it? In that case, great. If anybody's telling you what they think the ROI over the next, you know, uh, year two or three on a piece of rental real estate is going to be, I, I think they're a quack, just like I think we got quacks on TV saying the same kind of stuff about the stock market. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed on all on all fronts there. I think there's been a lot to talk about here so far in 2022. We'll we'll definitely keep doing what we've been doing and and sharing our thoughts and uh, what we're seeing out there when it comes to you know what the Fed's doing, what the economy's doing, what the market's doing, and uh, trying to put it all in the context of how it affects you, our listeners. Um, So that's going to do it for episode 410 of the Maluli Asset Podcast. Tim was on last week, and the Jets won. I don't know if there's a correlation there. He's not on this week, so that might spell some some bad things. If they lose, we'll get him back on for next week. Yeah, good call. call. (laughs) Thanks, as always, for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. 
Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.